global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Andrea Holton, an adjunct professor at the Albers School of Business and Economics at Seattle University, where she has taught international marketing since 2012. Andrea is a licensed customs broker and has been working in the field of international trade for over 20 years. Currently, she is the president of Rafiki Trade Group, consulting with international companies on U.S. import and export laws. Previously, Andrea taught business ethics at Daystar University in Nairobi, Kenya, and she has also taught through Bible Study Fellowship for 16 years. She enjoys teaching and mentoring students to be excellent ethical leaders. Andrea holds an MBA from Seattle University, as well as a BA in finance from Seattle Pacific University. Welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Andrea, welcome. We'd love to kick things off by asking you to describe your career trajectory. And could you please explain what a customs broker does for listeners who might be unfamiliar with that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I must say, when I first started school uh, back in the late 80s, uh, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something in business and I wanted to do something with people and, uh, and helping. And I started out as an accounting major and realized that I just could not be an accountant for the rest of my life. So I switched to finance and uh, from there started into uh, working with banking and then landed my first kind of big job with a Japanese import-export company. And that's really where it all started. Uh, the company was Pakmaru, which is a subsidiary of the second largest seafood company in Japan, Toyo Suisan Kaisha. And I worked for them for several years. And during that time, uh, learned Japanese. I was the only woman and I was the only American in the office. So I uh, really was a part of that culture and got my MBA and then realized that I was really drawn to teaching. And so with, with their support, uh, I ended up taking what I thought would just be a year off to go teach and got a job in at Daystar University in Nairobi, Kenya. And I taught there for about a year. And at the same time on my off time, worked with an NGO world concern doing project cost-based analysis. And during that time, I really was helping import-export. I was helping with uh, cultural understanding. I was <clears throat> working with veterinarians and actually learning about goats and chickens and 
thousand. Uh, it was an amazing experience that I'm so thankful for. Um, but when I came back to the States, uh, I had a lot of other things going on and I decided to put kind of the teaching thing on hold. And I started doing some consulting and ended up getting hired by Costco Wholesale to be their uh, compliance manager and eventually director. And I was in charge of all import-export compliance for North America. And it was really during that time that I became a licensed customs broker and started fully developing my understanding of compliance and how it was working in that in the global trade environment. So, Andrea, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the the role of, of a customs broker, could you could you tell us a little bit about what a what a broker does and how their functions differ from, say, customs uh, attorney or or other trade professionals? And I'd like to point out that one of uh, our colleagues uh, took the the exam last week, so we're all uh, anxiously waiting for for her results to come through. Well, that's excellent. It's, it is quite the exam. So it's uh, being a, a federally licensed customs broker, uh, you, you have to understand, uh, you know, the, the import and export regulations, the import regulations, really. And there, when I took it, I think there was a 7% pass rate. So it's, it is quite the exam. So uh, hopefully she will, she will do well. I'm sure she will. Um, but being a licensed customs broker, it gives you the authority authority uh, to import and export product um, over the borders of the U.S. So you have to be an American citizen in order to be a licensed customs broker, um, and you have to have a very thorough understanding of all of the codes and, and laws. It doesn't mean I, I can't go into a courtroom. I could be a, a witness, but um, being a custom broker, it also allows you to petition the government on behalf of an importer uh, to change a classification. And I'll probably talk about that more fully, but every item that's brought into or out of the U.S. has a 10-digit classification code. And that code determines the duty rate or other um, laws and regulations that would apply to that product, including we're going to be talking about dumping and anti-dumping, I think, later. Um, but you have to have a thorough understanding of classification, um, of different trade agreements and how to get that product in and out of the of the country uh, successfully, efficiently, and compliantly. We'll be coming back to to trade issues later in the podcast, but b- before we do that, uh, given our interest uh, in Africa, we, we we've had uh, a couple of guests already who have who have talked about. Uh, different regions of Africa. We we just have to ask you about your experience in in Kenya. How, how was that experience, and what are your thoughts on where Kenya and perhaps the region, the continent more broadly, are are heading? So I've always had a uh, a really a love of Africa. I would say, um, and so I was I was privileged to go. My first foray into to Africa was in 1988 uh, into South Africa, working. Uh, to abolish apartheid, um, we went in and we did a lot of training and cultural training down in South Africa. And that was a real, real privilege to be able to be a part of that. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity to go back to Kenya and teach, I, I really jumped on it. Africa is, um, it's amazing. The people are amazing. Um, you know, just, I, I love the culture and the, 
the feeling of community um, that is in Kenya. And there, there, I still feel like there's so much untapped potential. Um, you know, in um, when I was there, it was, you know, back in 98. So there were still, you know, phones were very unreliable. Uh, methods of payment were still very archaic. Um, super high crime. And, you know, a lot's changed since then. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, in 2019, Kenya's economic growth averaged, I, I believe, about 5.7%. Um, it was one of the fastest growing economies in sub-Saharan Africa. And we're seeing increased economic expansion. Um, there is a, a resilient, I would say, confidence that's happening um, in East Africa, especially right now. Um, I think the when the new constitution came into Kenya in 2010, a lot of things changed. Um, there became a different type of judiciary and electoral body. Uh, and so I, I think a lot changed in 2010. And, and we're seeing the results of that now. Um, of course, we know um, with COVID um, that, there, that Kenya has been hit hard, um, as most of Africa has. Um, there is, you know, the, the supply and demand uh, shocks. Um, there's the interruption of the supply chain. We're seeing, I'm sure you're aware, the locust attacks, um, which started in early 2020. They affected many parts of Kenya, especially the Northeast. Um, and it's had a negative impact on food security and growth of the, the agricultural sector. And so we're actually seeing the, the real GDP um, decelerate, uh, which is just kind of heartbreaking, actually, to see this. Um, but, you know, I do believe um, that once a lot of this is under control, that, that we will see a bounce back. Um, because I think that, you know, we know the World Bank is supporting uh, Kenya's pandemic response and doing emergency funding. Uh, so I think I think that there's still a lot of good things that uh, are on the horizon for them. So let's turn back to international trade. We do quite a bit of work at our firm involving the Section 301 tariffs, but it's really the first time that we've had a trade specialist on the podcast. Could you explain what the Section 301 tariffs are, why they were imposed on so many Chinese products? And then also, what's the practical impact on U.S. companies and consumers? Do you think we can expect a change in policy in the aftermath of the November election under a Trump II or the Biden administration? Well, we know that the Section 301 tariffs, um, the investigation started, I believe it was in August of 2017. Uh, and they began to investigate really China's acts and policies and practices, mainly related to technology transfer, intellectual property and innovation rights. And then in March of 2018, um, the president issued his memorandum um, about whether or not they were going to increase it. And then, of course, we know that in 2018 they did. And there's four separate lists that came out. Uh, the first list uh, came out. Uh, now, these are lists of classification codes. Um, and these each classification code is related to a different type of product. So the first list came out. I believe it was about worth about 34 billion in trade action. Uh, and the point of this was trying to basically put pressure on the Chinese government um, and on their policies uh, 
related to these technology transfers and intellectual property. And then we saw another list come out because they didn't really see full compliance. And then the third list and then the fourth list come out and we're seeing, um, so it's basically additional duty rates on top of current duty rates. So if you've got a product that's coming into the U.S. and its most favored nation duty rate is 10%, uh, we're going to see in some of these lists an additional 15 to 25% duty on top of that 10%. So what ends up happening is it makes it very, very costly then to import that product. And, you know, in some industries, um, the, the hope, I think, was to look more towards domestic production uh, but but some of these things we we don't really have any domestic production anymore, um, so that that's a huge issue. And I will say, um, in March of 2020, um, they went into the list and they excluded medical care products um, that needed to be to address the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, so they did take those products off the list, um, and they were excluded from any additional duties. And the practical impact is just everything's more expensive. Um, and of course, we know that these companies are passing along um, those costs to the consumer, uh, making other products more expensive. Um, so they did allow uh, companies to apply for exclusions. So a lot of companies that I worked with um, asked um, me to help them um, to file for an exclusion for against additional duties saying basically we can't produce this in the U.S. or we can't get this from anywhere else. This is proprietary to this factory or it's proprietary to, um, you know, this manufacturer. We need this. Um, and and the government has allowed um, quite a few exclusions from these additional duties. The other thing that's happening right now is the the last two lists, so list three and list four, Four, um, some companies are calling um, that it was an illegal action. And so some companies are joining a, a coalition of other companies petitioning the government to not only stop the additional duties, but actually to refund duties that have been paid for products coming in under list three or list four. And it, can I expect a change? I don't know. Honestly, under Trump two or Biden, not under Trump two for sure not. Um, and under Biden, I don't know. Um, you know, I think the underlying policies for this, uh, I understand. Um, but if if Biden is going to turn around, he's he's already said he's going to reverse uh, some things that the Trump administration has done. He he may try to do that. Well, I can tell you from from some of our experience um, applying for for exclusions, but also just tracking what the U.S. Trade Representative is doing in that regard. I, I think the consensus is that there's very little in the way of logic to to what is being done. Obviously, as Andrea mentioned, after the pandemic started, there there was a focus on medical products and, and products that that were connected to the to the um, the response to to COVID, but but beyond that, at least at least this is my personal experience. There, there really is very little uh, by way of a, of a unifying thread. Um, you know, you you look at some of these uh, exclusion requests that have been that that look you know well drafted and certainly um, well 
supported. Um, and then you look at some others that don't seem to have been drafted with, with, with a lot of care. And yet the results are, are sometimes, um, very, uh, unexpected. I, 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 I imagine that part of it is simply the, the particular examiners that are looking at things that are maybe, maybe coming up with, with their own, um, criteria, um, but, but yeah, that, that, that at least has been my experience, uh, Andrea. I don't know if, if that sort of squares with, with what you've seen, that there does seem to be a, a sort of mysterious quality to what's going on at USTR. Uh, no, I completely agree. Such a wide variety of items, and there doesn't seem to be a consensus on, on even how it seems like if, the, if you go through the exclusion process and you jump through all the hoops, then they'll exclude your product. Sticking to to, to trade, um, our, our firm also does a lot of work representing clients that have been impacted by uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty petitions, sometimes the foreign producers, sometimes U.S. importers. Um, could you explain to our listeners in, in general terms what what uh, anti-dumping and, and countervailing duties are, are for and uh, what, what trends, if any, are you seeing in, in the way that, that these duties are being imposed by, by the U.S. government? Well, of course, we know that um, anti-dumping, um, well, dumping occurs when foreign manufacturers sell goods in the U.S. at less than fair value. And I would say significantly less than fair value of what I've seen. So, for example, when I was working at Costco, we would get these surveys oh, at least a couple times a month citing a product that a U.S. manufacturer had um, went to the government and said, hey, you know, this product's being dumped into the U.S. and I'm losing my business. And so then the government sends out these surveys to say, so who are you buying from? Where are you buying it from? And what are your prices? And um, importing into the U.S. is a privilege. It's not a right. And so the government can really control um, what's happening in importing and exporting. And so you're required as an importer to fill out these surveys. So we would fill them out. And with dumping, it's, uh, it's really company-specific. Uh, so they, they look at the, what each company is doing. So you may have one company that's dumping and another company that's not dumping. Uh, for example. And then what's going to happen is the industry is found to indeed be dumping product into the U.S. market at less than fair value. Then the U.S. government will flag that HTS number, that classification code, and they will say, okay, for this product, it's being dumped into the U.S. And then company specific, they will actually assign an additional duty specific to that company. So let's say you have the industry's dumping, but you've got three companies coming out of, I'll just say Canada, because dumping happens all over the world. We have, we have dumping, um, anti-dumping orders against companies and, you know, every, com every country, pasta out of Italy, uh, tomatoes out of Canada, um, tissue paper out of China, chlorine out of China, just, you know, it's, it's really is worldwide. But let's say we've got, you know, three companies out of Canada that are dumping tomatoes and one is really undervaluing their product and the other one is not. Well, the one that's really undervaluing their product, the government can say, okay, so for you, the duty rate is now 420%. 
But for the company that's not doing it so much, your increased duty is 50%. So what they end up doing is, you know, who's going to pay 420% of the value? I mean, now you just made the product just way too low. And they watch to see if there's any type of discounts or um, if the company says, well, I'll charge you higher, but you can pay me back. You can't do that either. So that's really dumping. And it does hurt U.S. businesses and um, U.S. manufacturing. And the government takes it really, really seriously. And these anti-dumping orders can last um, for a long time. I think ball bearings are still under an anti-dumping order. And that's that's been decades that that's been on the books. And the other problem with dumping is if you bring in a product that's subject to anti-dumping, that entry, you have to to keep all the documentation on that entry in perpetuity, like forever, until that anti-dumping order goes away, which they don't have a tendency to go away. And so you have to keep all the paperwork and it stays open. And what I mean by that is it never liquidates. What I mean by that is that at any point in time, the government can come back and change the duty rate that you paid. So you purchase this product, you bring it in, you sell it, you make some money on it. And then five years later, they say, oh, actually, we, we need 10% or 100% more duty on that product. Well, that you've already sold that product. You don't have the profit from that product anymore. You can't adjust the price because it's already all sold. Um, so I always talk with my clients and I really encourage them not to be the importer of record if there is a product that's subject to anti-dumping. Uh, because it's just really, really risky to have just that risk sitting out there that can come back and, and bite you later. And of course, countervailing is a little bit different. Countervailing is when a foreign government provides enough, um, like a subsidy or tax benefit for their manufacturers to sell their goods more cheaply than a U.S. manufacturer. And <clears throat> we are seeing that actually right now with Boeing and Airbus. So we just saw on the news just this week about how the EU is talking about um, raising and doing countervailing for Boeing planes coming into Europe because the U.S. did that for Airbus planes coming into the U.S. Um, So in both the situations of dumping and countervailing, it really leads to the foreign undercutting of U.S. manufacturers' prices, and it does hurt U.S. manufacturers. So um, countervailing duties are determined on a country-specific level because it's the governments that are supporting the manufacturers. So it it really is more of a government and country specific level. Um, And the increase in duty rates is supposed to really counteract that subsidiary or foreign government assistance value. Um, It's supposed to level the playing field. And the trends, um, especially under the Trump administration, we're seeing increased focus. You bring up a couple of interesting points that I think are worth, um, worth highlighting. Uh, first of all, like as you said, um, the, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty orders really do cover a, a broad range of products and also countries of origin that that, that really span the globe and are in no way limited to, um, let, let's say, quote unquote, um, uh, trade adversaries of the U.S., uh, Canada, for example, Mexico, countries which we have a, a healthy trade relationship without some of the issues associated with with China uh, in particular. And, and, you know, when, when these orders come out, right, I mean, you, you sometimes see these long lists of, of countries um, 
small countries in in Europe, uh, countries in the Middle East. It, it's it's very uh, could be counterintuitive, perhaps for for some. And the other thing I just wanted wanted to mention is that this is not a the U.S. is not the only country in the world that that has these these trade remedies. So. Um, as, as you alluded to, I mean, U.S. products can find themselves on the uh, on the um, pointy end of, 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 of the the stick when it comes to anti-dumping and or, or countervailing uh, orders. But also, there are often actions between uh, between third countries, right? So, um, let's say, for example, Brazil might institute. Uh, proceedings against certain products from from China, um, you know, countries um, countries in Europe, of course, can 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 have these these proceedings against um, third countries. So um, it's not a uniquely American phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a side question now. Uh, you've got me thinking about the uh, the idea of precious metals, right? And we you know China is a leader in certain kinds of precious metal extractions in part because China's one of the only countries willing to go through the environmental degradation to get those elements out of the earth. Um, do you think that, uh, that the, uh, you know, tariffs or other, uh, other trade related policies can be a mechanism to, um, help other countries that want to step into that supply chain where China very much has a stranglehold on on some of the key elements, for instance, that go into our our uh, ubiquitous technology products? You know, I do. And the U.S. government also has, you know, their GSP program. Of course, a lot of countries do. But with the, <clears throat> the GSP generalized system of preferences, it really is an, an aid program where if products are wholly mined, or manufactured in a country that is uh, a developing nation, uh, oftentimes that product can be brought in duty-free. So Kenya is a member of GSP, and so we see uh, quite a few products being brought in from Kenya under the GSP program. You know, I think that that could be a way um, by either using the GSP program or, or again, making the, the product coming out of China so expensive that then U.S. manufacturers are forced to look somewhere else. So sticking with China now, the issue of forced labor has been in the news quite a bit lately, especially involving workers from ethnic minorities. And it's really becoming probably the major sticking point now um, in the bilateral relationship between U.S. and China. So in addition to the obvious human rights concerns, we've got implications for trade policy. Can you tell us about the response of the U.S. government and what additional actions might be taken against Chinese entities? Well, under um, Section 307 of the Tariff Act, um, it actually prohibits the importation of merchandise mined, produced, or manufactured wholly or in part in any foreign country by forced or indentured labor, including forced child labor. And so the government, when they find out about these things, that merchandise is immediately subject to exclusion or seizure. And it can lead to criminal investigation of the importer uh, if the importer had any clue um, that this was happening. And so we are seeing this being a, a more focus of Customs and Border Protection right now. We are seeing uh, more inquiries into it for sure. China's a little bit harder. Um, I know that Stevia um, was found in actually August of this year 
uh, have uh, bringing in imports made with forced labor out of China. And I believe CBP collected fines in excess of about a little over half a million dollars from Stevia. And then in 2019, um, out of China, uh, it's called a withhold and release order, but it basically prevents merchandise from coming in. And this was from a group called the Hero Vast Group. They import garments, but they found out that they were being manufactured with prison labor in China. Uh, and so, I mean, there's a couple, those are a couple examples of China where the government's been able to, you know, ascertain that indeed these products were being uh, used with forced labor. And like I said, it it's really is becoming more of a focus for Customs and Border Protection right now. And if you go onto the CBP website, that's cbp.gov, um, it actually has information on companies in specific countries that have been found to use forced labor. So importers really need to do their due diligence and make sure they're not contracting with any of these manufacturers. Uh, they, they need to have boots on the ground. They need to have people that go out and check these factories um, and, and really confirm that, that their product is not being made with forced labor. Absolutely. This, this is a point that we try to drive home when we, when we talk with our clients and, and, and just more broadly, when, when we write about, about China on, on our blogs and, and, and through, through this podcast, as, as you pointed out, it's, it's certainly an issue that is increasingly in, in, uh, on CBP's radar. And, and I think many companies really um, underestimate the, the risks. They, they also underestimate the, the possible consequences. One very common reaction that companies have is to say, well, you know, we don't, we're not manufacturing in, in, in Xinjiang, you know, we're, we're not there. This is not going to be a problem uh, for us. And I mean, number one, as you pointed out, there are issues involving convict labor, which, which can, tran- you know, which do transcend any, any particular uh, location with, within China or any particular group, right? There, there have been instances of prison labor all, all, all over China. Also, the fact that it's not um, limited to factories in these hotspots. It's well documented that there are uh, factories elsewhere in China that are quote unquote employing uh, employees from Xinjiang uh, at locations elsewhere. And, and moreover, e- even if you're even if the manufacturer with whom you're dealing appears to be clean, uh, they're part of a, of a larger supply chain, right? As a, as, a, as a company, as a responsible company, you really have to look deeper into your supply chain and not just at that one factory with whom you're dealing, right? You have to look into where they are getting their, their, their components or, or, or parts. So definitely a very, a very critical issue for, for American companies. So, before we finish, um, we'd like to ask you for any recommendations that you might have for our listeners, uh, whether something you've read or something you've listened to or, or something you're watching on Netflix, uh, anything that you, you really think is worth sharing, we would, we would welcome those, those recommendations. Well, I would say, you know, kind of leaning on, on what we were just talking about, even with forced labor, um, you know, things can happen that you that you don't see coming necessarily. So you you have to exercise what customs calls reasonable care, and that is making it very clear to all of your uh, suppliers and manufacturers what your expectations are. 
And, you know, there's, um, CBP has some good uh, documentation on their website. Um, the USITC is where I go for all the anti-dumping, um, you know, information. There, there are a lot of really good government websites out there that, that give a lot of information on the topics that we've covered. Um, going international and global, um, I, I really like the book Kiss, Bow, um, or Shake Hands. The author for that is Terry Morrison and Wayne Conaway. That's an excellent book. Um, <clears throat> I would, you know, highly recommend uh, all of our importers and exporters um, of having a third party come in and conduct an import and export compliance audit. Um, these, uh, if you let, if you wait for the government, um, I was a part of an audit, a compliance audit from the government that lasted almost two years. <laughs> um, and so making sure that you've got a really strong compliance program that's documented and that all the key players um, in the supply chain are, are in the loop, are have annual training and, you know, that you're listening to podcasts like this, that uh, there's a lot of different um, resources uh, and you need to vet them, make sure that they're coming from a, a reliable place. But, you know, just staying informed is so important. Um, you know, no matter what your product is, if, if you've got product that is um, subject to FDA rules, you need to be sure that you know about the FDA Bioterrorism Act, including prior notice. Um, there's different groups on LinkedIn and different industry-specific associations that publish information on what is happening globally. Uh, so looking in your specific industry um, and looking for those um, can be of great benefit to you. Thank you. Lots of valuable advice there for, for sure. Um, Jonathan, what about you? Do you have anything you'd like to recommend this week? Uh, recently, I read an article called Why China's Recovery is Not What It Seems. It was a guest post in the Financial Times by a finance professor at Peking University named Michael Pettis. He's also a senior fellow at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. And I actually saw a presentation by him when I was in law school at George Washington in my Chinese law class. And uh, I was kind of blown away. He was speaking at such a high level, I couldn't digest even what he was saying about the Chinese economy, other than I figured out that he was some kind of financial wizard who really understood all the levers that needed to be pulled around China and, and the effect that those had, right? A real serious economist, uh, you know, driven by numbers. So this article is uh, it's fairly short. It's quite digestible if you've had any foundation in, in economics. And uh, it's interesting because he says it looks like, you know, everyone's kind of in the media saying, hey, China's recovery has really started because their domestic consumption has increased. He says, but if you, if you kind of overlay that domestic consumption with the amount of, uh, of domestic uh, industrial production, you can see that, that this, these retail sales are just being boosted by uh, domestic production, not actually by real um, uh, kind of real organic um, domestic consumption. And he says the only way that China is really going to recover is if they get back to real domestic consumption. And really what, what uh, we've talked about quite a bit on the blog is that China's uh, the only way that China survives the trade war or anything at all is to offset the losses, the international export losses by domestic consumption. And uh, it's not clear that that's even possible because of uh, China's demographic uh, downward trend and uh, and the way that Chinese consumers 
like to save more than they like to spend as a general rule. So uh, very interesting. You know, I'm, I don't consider myself an economist, but I like to dabble and, and appreciate other experts in uh, who understand how economies work. So I recommend that article. Um, Fred, what do you have for us? I'd like to recommend a foreign policy piece. Title is Beijing Believes Trump is Accelerating American Decline. So I'm, I'm sticking with, uh, with the China theme. This uh, was published uh, yesterday, um, October 12th, and the author is Rush Doshi. Basically, as, as the title suggests, uh, the, the article is about the Chinese government's perception of, um, of U.S. power and, and how the, the current administration is, is, is impacting. The author makes a convincing argument that, that China is constantly reassessing uh, power dynamics between itself and and the U.S. and uh, talks about the different the different stages that um, have have marked that process of, of of assessing relative strengths and one of the things that 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 resonated with me is that the author points out to the financial crisis of of two thousand eight he 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 points at that as a as a, as a watershed moment in in, in China's reevaluation of its of its relationship with with, with the U.S. and that definitely um, lines up with with what I witnessed uh, living in, in in China during during that time period and and seeing how there was a, a marked change in in the attitudes so you could almost see in real time this move uh, away from uh America is all powerful to growing sense of confidence on, on the part of the, the Chinese and not just the government but society at large and that 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 does make me me think that indeed um, we, we are now uh, in the middle of a, of a new um, step in, in in that process one in which uh, China thinks that the time is ripe to, to step up its efforts to, to become more, more prominent. So again, Beijing believes Trump is accelerating American decline. We will, of course, provide links to all of the recommendations in our uh, blogs when we, when we roll out the, the podcast. And with that, Andrea, I'd like to thank you very, very much for, for having joined us. Really enjoyed the conversation with you. And there's certainly a lot more that we can talk about. So I'm just going to put it out there that we will we will be inviting you again before too long. All right. Thanks, Brad and Jonathan. It was a real pleasure being with you guys today. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.